As I mentioned, this is um, we are we are closing out with these last two lectures, our series on uh, uh, the Princeton lectures on youth, church, and culture, and we are delighted with our lecture this evening. Dr. Brian Bantam is associate professor of theology at Seattle Pacific University. He received his bachelor's degree from Houghton College, a master's of theological studies from Duke University Divinity School and a PhD from Duke University Divinity School. He has authored and published two books. You may have seen them sitting out either downstairs in Stewart here or over in Mackay. One is entitled Redeeming Mulatto. The second, The Death of Race. His teaching and research focuses on the intersection of theology and identity, exploring how the claims of Christian identity are illumined and challenged by the realities of race, ethnicity, and gender. Dr. Bantam would choose, just so you know this about him, um, he would choose a root beer over an IPA any day of the week. He would also wisely choose a Lindt truffle or a Ghirardelli bar over and against a Hershey bar, agreeing with me that Hershey's has a heretical claim on the word chocolate. Um, <laughs> and I'm from Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> I want to tell you more about him, though. He's a, a black biracial son of Wendy and Joseph, husband of Gail Song, a Korean-American pastor, and father to three mixed-race children. Dr. Bantam's theological questions emerged from a life knit from many communities, their struggles, their transgressions, and their practices of resistance. Writing, teaching, and speaking on theology, embodiment, and Christian life, Dr. Bantam asks students to cultivate disruptive spaces of in-between in their lives and calling. I am particularly and personally compelled by Dr. Bantam's dedication in his book, The Death of Race. It's dedicated to his three sons. And if you are wondering about his youth ministry experience, his three sons are in the teenage and young adult years at this very moment. Um, in a conversation I was having with him last night, he told me that he wanted to leave his own kids with a vision of what the Christian life could be. And I think every youth minister at one point or another can resonate with the incredibly personal nature of this particular kind of call. Perhaps even you have penned curriculums or led worship in such a way as to join Dr. Bantam's effort to cast a vision for what it looks like to follow Jesus. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Brian Bantam this evening. Good evening, everyone. How are you all tonight? Good. I'm so happy to see you all. It's nice and sunny outside, and you chose to be here with me. Um, makes me very, very um, excited. Um, I want to thank Abigail for the, for the wonderful invitation to be here this week. Um, it's just It's always nice to come and kind of be in a space where you just get to think and be with people who are on a similar kind of path. Um, my school is also on a quarter system, so this is also a welcome respite. So I'm right in the middle of my last quarter. Um, spring quarter is always rough because you're just ready to be done. And so like, oh, I get to be away and have a kind of theology camp while everyone else slaves away with grading. Um, but when I get back, I'll have a whole pile and committee meetings and all that kind of But I'm not trying to think about that right now. Um, so what I want to do to, over the next um, tonight and tomorrow morning is to begin to think a little bit about this idea of images 
and the relationship between images and our bodies. And so tonight, we'll think a little bit, we'll kind of take a deconstructive turn, because you know, we theologians, we have to do that sometimes, um, and kind of begin to think about maybe, perhaps, some of the problematic um, heritages, traditions, um, patterns that have built up um, in our kind of Protestant understanding of what images are. But of course, I also am a constructive theologian, so I want to leave you with a kind of possibility. Um, we'll offer a kind of little glimmer of that maybe at the end of today, but tomorrow morning is where I really kind of give you Jesus. So that gives you a reason to, to come back in the morning, or at least wake up a little bit early. So at its heart, Christianity is a sensual faith. The word made flesh is a confession that was once heard or felt in fleeting or ephemeral ways, becomes tangible, felt, seen, present in ways that were at once paradoxical, paradoxical and irrefutable. As the early Jewish followers of Jesus continued to walk with him, a growing and disturbing reality would begin to emerge. Their God, the one whose name could not be enunciated, whose presence was signified more by a veil than by presence and recognition, seemed to be walking with them, laughing with them. In Christ, the meaning of God's promise to them, I will be your God and you will be my people, becomes something more than an abstract promise and is now a person who walks among them. But the incarnation, far from subverting a belief in the body's opposition to God, reminds us that our bodies and our lives are something to be seen and to see. Just as Adam and Eve open their eyes to see one another and in that moment are confronted with a beautiful truth, in this other that they can see, touch, hear, they come to see themselves more clearly. And through this other who is given to them, they also can begin to see God more faithfully. In the midst of seeming to have seen God, the earliest disciples walked carefully when it came to images and depictions of Christ. The Jewish sensibilities against creating graven images remained, even as Christianity shifted from a movement of Jews to a movement of Gentiles. Perhaps a subtle depiction of the Good Shepherd would adorn a wealthy Christian's tomb. Or a home might have a mural depicting a biblical passage that centered a community's devotion. When Constantine comes into power in the fourth century, we see a broader use of images as the church moves from a marginality to, to a place of power. Images become a means of signifying Christian identity and God's work among the people, whether in architecture or paintings or frescoes or mosaics. Images, much like the emperor's own image, begin to communicate devotion and power and communicates a way of seeing and being in the world. In the East, the interrelationship between image and faith would become a well-developed theology of the icon, a deep and generative attempt to consider the truth of Jesus' person as human and divine, as a visual and anthropological phenomenon. As we gaze at the icon, as we kiss it, as we are drawn into the image it reflects, we pray that we might too become something of this image itself, that we might reflect the one who was reflected in the image. The image is living, if you will. Pavel Florensky, the Russian theologian, describes the icon as a transfixing, 
an annunciation that proclaims in color the spiritual world. Therefore, icon painting is the occupation of a person who sees that world as sacred. In this response of icon writing, the writer, the artist, is the one who prays, who mediates this presence into the world through a union of contemplation and skill and insight. At its heart, the theology of the icon is a theology of personhood, though. It is a, suggests that who we are is more than a soul, that who we are is somehow inextricably bound to the materiality of our lives. We are bodies inspirited, souls enfleshed, so to speak, to borrow from the language of Karl Barth. In this respect, icons in their use in liturgies or personal devotion are not about worshiping an image, but more about illuminating the, illuminating the truth of our bodies and our lives. That we are spirit and flesh and that we are more than what we see, but what we see is also essential to who we are. And so what these early theologies of the icon had their finger on was an understanding of the inevitable relationship between flesh and spirit, between the material conditions of our lives and the notions of spirit and spirituality that animate who we are and who we believe we ought to be. Put differently, the Eastern theology of the icon acknowledged and sought to theologically account for what I want to call an economy of visuality. By economy of visuality, I mean the currents of sense, sight, sound, touch, and taste through which we experience and express our world. Through our sight, our senses, we are accounting for the differences that we see, that are encounter us among ourselves and in the world and even in the very universe. Theorist Maurice Morlo-Ponty suggests this phenomenon is one of navigating space, where I do not reflect, I live among things, and I vaguely consider space sometimes as the milieu of things, sometimes as their common attribute, or I reflect, I catch hold of space at its source, I think at this moment of the relationships that are beneath this word, and I notice in this way that they are only sustained through a subject who traces out and bears them. I pass from spatialized space to spatializing space. What Merleau-Ponty is pressing here is that perception, visuality, is not simply a theological concept. It's simply not a Christian idea. We come to know the world not simply through intellection and notions of reason and rationality. We sense the world we are in. We are caught up in a world. In a very real way, the economy of visuality and the theology of the icon are inextricably bound together. Put differently, the theology of the icon perhaps is only naming a reality that was already and always is in the world. So how does this economy of visuality develop in the West, though? And how does that shape our contemporary life? So the icon is not an explicitly theological phenomenon. We are inundated with advertisements, screens, media, and images are ubiquitous. As um, Professor Milner talked about there, we live in an optocracy, perhaps. Although maybe I might say that it's not quite so foreboding. Images are ubiquitous. We know these images that shape us even as they reflect aspects of who we are, or at least believe ourselves to be. Notions of beauty, danger, peace, what is healthy, what is successful, can be equated with visual cues, icons, if you will. 
like our phones, where the ability to name a song, to connect with others, and who, might, who you might be connected to. These images point beyond themselves and are part of a network of meanings and values that shape us in what we participate within. This is my little fancy, I did something fancy with PowerPoint. I was very, I was very impressed with myself. Ooh, see, this is my Instagram. I have more, I have more followers than pictures. I don't know, what, is, that, is, that, is that good, bad? I'm not sure what's supposed to happen. I only post like every once in a while. But part of the idea here is to say that we are all in a sense creating images, right? Creating icons, creating meaning every single day in our lives, consuming the meaning of others, some more famous than me. Um, and so the church is not immune. So whether the hipster pastor with tattoos, or a goodwill jacket, or the three-piece suit, or the ornamented vestments, or a simple alb, in the priest or preacher's clothing, we see visual energy, an economy of meaning buzzing to and from those in the pulpit. In the frame of these preachers are our sanctuaries, our cathedrals, our storefronts, our elementary school gymnasiums, whether rotating LEDs or elaborate stonework or gargoyles or saints, to plain whitewashed walls and simple windows. Before a word is even uttered, we could say, these spaces are already speaking, already saying something. And at the same time, even without paintings or murals or stained glass windows, visuality permeates and shapes our world. Our sense of ourselves, whether it's gender, ethnicity, race, these are just a few of the ways we have sought to make sense of the differences we see in the world. And when we consider the central images and sounds of our sacred spaces, even in their many diversities, we are confronted with a troubling commonality, the centrality of men. In the pulpits, in images, in prayers, Again and again in our worship life, we encounter a mysterious God through male voices and male bodies. This was my simple preacher, Google search. And these are the images that come. I had to scroll and scroll and scroll before I saw the first woman. Right? What does it mean to be a preacher? What is the image? What does it look like? What's the first thing that comes to, to our minds? And so my concern this evening is how this inevitable relationship unfurls in the Western church and how this economy of visuality continues to permeate our lives every day. I want to suggest that the question of the image is the question of the body, and that the question of the body is the question of the image. To begin to account for the differences of our world and the significance of the word made flesh, we have to begin to account for the visuality of the world the visuality of our spaces of worship, and the visuality of our lives together. So this evening and tomorrow morning, I want to examine this question through two angles. The first is the emergence of what I am calling the Protestant icon. The, how in a movement that so often sought to suppress images, or in other cases sought to reduce images primarily to didactic purposes, can we even speak of a Protestant icon, or an even, even a theology of the icon? Put differently, what happens to an economy of visuality when it is seemingly denied? I'll give a hint here. It's not 
good. Tomorrow morning, I will outline a way forward, considering how black artists both resisted the dehumanizing iconicity of colonial Christianity and quote unquote, wrote new images of black humanity. Through these artists, we see the possibility of a world where visuality and sensuality is an indelible and vital aspect of what it means to be human and a necessary means to understand and live into God's life with us. Even more, they point us to how practices of visuality are fundamental to being human and living into what it means to be the, um, the Imago Dei. Following a few aspects of their work and approach, we can begin to see a way of experiencing and seeing the world that draws us more deeply into the materiality of God's creative life. And this is what I take to be the heart of Christology, of the theological task, of theological anthropology, that it ought to trace the patterns and movements and of refraction that illumine or obscure us that I return again and again to artists as guides for what it means to navigate this world and how visual artists see and represent the world and who we are and perhaps who we might be. Called to see the world, they not only observe but must create, cut, bind, crush, layer, build, enfold until there was something where there was no thing. But in the wake of the colonial project for the black artist or any artist of color, for white women, this task is an extension of being seen in the world, navigating the visceral nodes of contact that render one's body an aesthetic or anesthetic presence. As Toni Morrison reminds us in The Bluest Eye, was there ever a more dangerous idea in the world than beauty? The idea that who we are and our worth or possibilities are indelible to our bodies. Of course, most of us know the question of God's visuality was an aspect of controversy and scandal surrounding the claims of Jesus' divinity and would continue in the debates regarding iconoclasm and iconophilia throughout the church's history. But how do we get to, a refer to the Reformation and a Protestant icon? So the Protestant Reformation was a period of profound upheaval, not only in theological terms, rapidly expanding ways of knowing, gleaned from the Renaissance and knowledge gleaned from humanist intellectual and artistic inquiry, as well as technological advances that expanded the means of disseminating knowledge and ideas resulted in a radical democratization of knowledge, a moment not unlike our, our current one, I think. Martin Luther's opposition, opposition to the papacy had its roots in questions of doctrine and practice, and while questions over the Lord's Supper, baptism, church, pile, church polity roiled and continually splintered the reformers and continues to do so today, the question of images was also a critical question to these, reform, to these reforms. While Catholicism employed a wide range of visual elements in its worship and devotional life, from images of Mary and other saints to statues to the elaborate vestments of priests and bishops, um, even the Eucharistic altar itself could be understood as a visual element, as, a, as in a sense a kind of image of who Christ was. The visuality was a vital aspect of piety in lives seeking to live into the kingdom of God. So this is not to say that Catholic notions of images mirrored Eastern theologies of the icon. It's simply to say that images were encouraged as a vital aspect of Christian life. The Reformation, this curious moment of retrieval and innovation, 
continue to struggle with this question of visuality, however, as we've already seen this week. But this economy was now caught within a very different set of questions, and consequently a fundamentally different framework of possibilities. The differences and similarities of the three primary reformers highlights well the varying understanding of images, as well as outlines some of the shared concerns and directions of the emerging Protestant reformers. The most iconoclastic of the reformers was Andreas Karlstadt. Under the, his leadership, churches saw their relics and statues smashed, stained glass windows broken, and any image of a saint or Jesus stripped from the walls. My favorite story was, is one of where they actually will tear down images or, or, or statues and then defecate on them. That's real mature, Andy, real mature. <laughs> But listen to why, why does he do this? He says, God hates and is jealous of pictures, as I will demonstrate and consider that, considers them an abomination and proclaims that all men in his eyes are like the things they love. Pictures are loathsome. It follows that we also become loathsome when we love them. Thus images bring death to those who worship or venerate them. Please tell us how you really feel. Uh, <laughs> And so we can see Karlstadt is, is fairly unambiguous in his contempt for images. But his point was fundamentally Christological. We worship the risen Jesus. And much like Ulrich Zwingli's Eucharistic arguments, the risen Christ is with the first person of the Trinity in heaven, not here. And we do not need to create graven images of Jesus in order for, for Jesus to be present to us in some way. John Calvin, less extreme than Karlstadt, would write regarding images, God has forbidden two things. First, the making of any picture of him. The other is that no image may be worshipped. He writes, the setting up of images in churches is a defiling act. By and by, folk go and kneel down to it. The papists paint and portray Jesus Christ, who, as we know, is not only man, but also God manifested in the flesh. He is God's eternal Son, in whom the fullness of the Godhead dwells, yes, even substantially. Should we have portraitures and images whereby only the flesh may be represented? Is not a wiping away of that which is chiefest in our Lord Jesus Christ, that is to wit, his divine majesty? So in a refrain, we can see throughout all the reformers, the body of, the, of Christ is the fundamental question at the heart of all of these controversies. For, for Calvin, the question was his divinity, right? How do we portray, how do we image, how do we help people to understand the profundity and the transcendence that is present in Jesus? And any image diminishes that notion of transcendence. So again and again, what we're seeing is this struggle over the question of who is Jesus. But of course, all of these reformers make a turn towards the body of Christ, the body of Christ as the congregation. So in a refrain we see throughout, the body of Christ is not in the image. The body of Christ is the congregation. It is the people. It is not the building. It's not the elements. It's not the images. The question for the icon, of the icon for the reformers was grounded in an anthropological claim regarding the capacity of the people to reflect Christ's presence in the world. This sounds good so far, right? You're like, okay, we can get behind that. Iconoclasm's not so bad. So of course it should be said here that not all the reformers were stridently against images. 
This more moderate view is encapsulated best by Martin Luther. Like most reformers, Luther had a suspicion of images and what he saw as the idolatry that they represented and inculcated. Luther was a bit more liberal in allowing vestments or banners or images as we saw, with, um, as we saw in, in uh, Professor Milner's presentation. Um, but like Calvin and Zwingli, we saw whitewashed walls and sanctuaries. We saw very simplified worship spaces. We saw most of the images taken down except for a very few strategically placed ones. Um, so in a way, the limit of the use of art to specific and didactic images. Oh, look at that. There we go. Oh, that's Karlstadt. I got mixed up on my things. Those are smashing images. <laughs> we're past forward a little bit. Okay. Um, so as art historian Joseph Coroner suggests, Luther judged images not for what they in themselves were, um, but for the function that they served, declaring that the argument is not about substance, but about the use and abuse of things. So he tolerated and finally even encouraged church art as long as it instructed. That became the rule of thumb. And like other reformers, Luther had a suspicion of any images that he saw as idolatrous or that perhaps um, drew people to worship them instead of God. And so Luther, working with the artist Connacht the Elder, would, would together offer a visual retelling of the Christian life and story. In a fascinating study of Luther and Cronach's collaboration, historian Stephen Osment writes, for Cronach, the church art, church art was the painter's staple. While for Luther, art gave the gospel sermon immediacy and the church a captive audience. Luther's work with Cronach the Elder mimics the relationship, perhaps, between the Eastern priest and the icon writer. Luther understood a critical relationship between the visual and the word preached and ultimately for the life of the congregant. But notice a critical difference here in Luther and Cronach's economy. The one who sits in this ecclesial space is primarily a hearer of the word. The images are subservient to the deeper, more fundamental truth of the word spoken. This notion of instruction is important. The initial impulse behind Luther's thinking bears a certain resemblance to Catholic clarification of images that would emerge in the Council of Trent in 1563. This notion of instruction, of guiding, of helping us to see more clearly. And so images oriented the viewer to faith and allowed them insight into what faithfulness has looked like and what it might look like in their lives whether in stained glass windows, illuminated manuscripts, pocket-sized images of saints, these all served to visualize the mysteries of redemption for Luther. But for the reformers, the mysteries of redemption could not be imaged insofar as they were grounded in belief, right? So notice there's a fundamental separation here that's happening, right? That the, the locus of truth, the locus of what is operative, the locus of where God is doing the work, is not in anything material. It is spirit, it is the word, it is perhaps intellection or faith, right? The material world is subservient to the invisible reality. Right? So maybe you're like, oh, maybe, yeah, yeah, something's, something's going on here. We'll see what happens. So the reformers saw Catholic images as distracting from this central message of faith, right? Resisting what they saw as attempts to mediate Christ's presence through various means, they understood God's mystery as extending a promise to our lives. 
in a way that the people become the body of Christ. But for Luther, the images are not operating within an economy of transformation, wherein the image or icon serves as a window into a true image that can never be truly known. This is where the didactic turn is. The images are only efficacious if they can be understood and their meaning is clear, right? And we'll see an example of this. There we go. An image that teaches. Luther and the reformers reflect an attempt to, we might say, um, dam up the currents of visuality, to redirect its energy, and in doing so, created new icons and new images imprinted upon our bodies, work that the Enlightenment would build upon with tragic and enduring consequences for so many of us. And I can talk about that more later if you're interested. But if, if the reformers resisted images as mediating or drawing us into the, into the mysteries of God's presence, what were images for then? And I want to suggest that we see four visual enactments in the development of Protestant church life. The first was the pedagogical invocation of images, whether the images of Chronic the Elder or Holbein the Younger, paintings, woodcuts, altarpieces, all served to highlight the foundational messages of the gospel. The most prevalent of these was law and grace, which took on several forms, both in paintings and woodcuts that were reprodu reproduced widely. And so this is an example. So Cronach's work highlights a world divided. On one side, we see a world ruled by law, the, and the other by, and by the ruler of this world. We, we see temptation, we see loss, we see shame. And on the other side, we see Christ, the cross, redemption. Law and grace was fundamentally an educational tool intended to visualize right belief and its consequences or possibilities for our lives. And so in a way, like kind of, I mean, just imagine, kind of like look at this for a little bit and say, okay, where do you want to be? Do you want to be on, on the left side with the dark bushes, the kind of shame, a weird devil character seeming to kind of hunch over you? Or do you want to be on the right side with two Jesuses? Do you want to be a floating cherubim head with glowing light? Do you want to be coming out of the cross like this person? Which, which one do you want? Uh, um, grace? Yes, that's what you want, right? And so part of the power of these images are their clarity, right? There's no mystery. There's no ambiguity. There's no uncertainty. They are intended to show what life ought to be, what the choice is that you have before you. And a second example of explicit images among the reformers were more polemical in nature. Repurposing the images of their previously Catholic, of Catholic buildings, the images would be edited and redacted. Oh, I don't have an example of this one, I'm sorry. Would be, it would be redacted, demonstrating the consequences of unbelief and warnings against idolatry. So here you would take an old image from a kind of medieval church, and then anywhere where you saw, you saw Eucharist or worship of saints, those people who were worshiping the saints, their faces were painted grotesque and bent and dark. And wherever you saw people pointing towards Jesus, they were light and free and open. And so notice the different kind of dualism that's happening here, right? There is, a, there is a path of righteousness, and there is a path of death. There are people of death. There are people of life. 
People's bodies, the grotesque and the beautiful, now get corresponded to a vi a visual, to visual cues. So as Houston Deal suggests, the traditional icons of judgment don't disappear from new Protestant art. And this is, again, what we saw with Professor Milner on Tuesday. Art's everywhere. We see it in, we see it in homes. We see it in churches. It, so it, in a way, the, the notion that images are idolatrous is not completely true. Certain kinds of images, right? Certain purposes of images, which means that in a lot of ways, the reformers are still trading on and working within an economy of visuality. So I'm getting off my script because I'm getting excited. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, this is really exciting. But it is, it's really exciting. So Houston Deal suggests the traditional icons of judgment don't disappear in new Protestant art, even in England, in spite of polemics against religious images or ordinances which prohibit image worship and violent outbursts of iconoclasm. These images are not repressed by the reformers. Instead, they are transformed and reinterpreted according to the tenets of new Protestant faith. The images persist, in other words, but their function changes. Deal suggests that despite the rather universal resistance to icons and images for veneration among the reformers, there is nonetheless a continual drawing upon images for particular use. He suggests it is their function that changes rather than their presence. And so as the reformers struggle to discern the significance of images, we see that for the most part, they actually recognize their power even while trying to determine the orientation of that power towards a more singular idea, salvation by faith. Put in a different way, they are always trying to discipline and subject materiality to the spiritual. While resisting the implicit and explicit theological logic of the icon found in either Catholic or Eastern Orthodox piety and thought, the reformers could only redirect this visual economy into terms that reinforced their theological commitments to notions of faith and grace as the central aspects of Christian life. But in addition to the explicit rearticulations of image in ecclesial life, these Protestant churches also began to transform their ecclesial spaces. And these there are two significant shifts that we see. The first is the practice of whitewashing walls. One example of this practice incorporated into the confessional life of Strasbourg, Switzerland reads, the true ornamentation of sanctuaries. Therefore, all luxurious attire, all pride, and everything unbecoming to Christian humility, discipline, and modesty are to be banished from the sanctuaries and places of prayer to Christians. For the true ornamentation of churches do not consist in ivory, gold, and precious stones, but in the frugality, piety, and virtues of those who are in the church." End quote. And so from this ordinance, we can see the hope. By stripping the ecclesial spaces of ornamentation and other extravagances, we are focused not on earthly wealth, but on heavenly wealth. This shift reflects a sincere adherence to Jesus' warnings concerning wealth. It's good. It comes out of a good place. There are no evil people here. But at the same time, while these reformers may have obscured signs of human wealth and opulence, they, did not, but they didn't create spaces devoid of visual elements. They didn't suppress the economy of visuality that permeates any space. They simply redirected its energy. But where? 
And so as we see the slow shift in ecclesial spaces from an altar-centric space with multiple visual cues dispersed throughout the worship space to ecclesial spaces where the most prominent visual cues are either the pulpit or prominent cross or image of Christ's sacrifice above the altar, the reformers create a new icon, a new constellation of visual cues that form a new economy of visuality. In other words, these various reforms work together to form what I think is actually a new icon. It's not the Bible on the altar. It's not the cross in the background. It is actually the preacher himself. That is, the reformers unwittingly created an icon even as they destroyed the images of their churches. In stripping the walls of their churches, they transformed, oh, too fast, they transformed their churches and their preachers into images of an image that ultimately reified, hardened, and enclosed the possibilities of what any preacher could look like, what any authority could, could be. For all of their hope to reframe the body of Christ away from images and toward the congregation, they nonetheless created a living image week after week and theologically reinforced this living icon with a theology that emphasized faith and hearing, a word that laid beneath every body that could somehow be discerned without the material realities of images and differing images at that. And so, of course, we, as we have seen this week, the reformers continue to use images, and despite their rhetoric against it, but here the disjuncture between image and word, between body and soul, between sacred and profane, served as a membrane between the two, never truly theologically accounting for the image as, fundamental, as a fundamental aspect of what it means to be human, and by extension, refusing the material reality of Jesus' body, and furthermore, refusing the bodily reality of what it means to be a person made in the image of God. And so, of course, as part of my contention is that the struggle to navigate the interrelationship of body and word, of image and idea, is something that is not only present in the Protestant Reformation, but is inherent to Christianity itself, given the claim that the hidden God becomes visible, or that Israel is itself an embodiment of God, the temple is a space of God's presence. In this sense, Christianity is not new, but a deepening of this interrelationship between God hidden and revealed, present and absent in the world. The question of the image is never if, it is always how and who. The controversies of iconicity and the significance of the icon were questions of whether representations adequately capture. But in a sense, they have, underneath these disagreements, a consensus about the significance of God's image in us and how we recreate it. And so to make sense of the Protestant Reformation's conflicted understanding and use of the image, we need to expand upon the Eastern theology of the icon. Put differently, the East theology of the icon, with its emphasis on the visuality of the word enfleshed, and a, and a related theological emphasis on that visual, visuality as a node of participation with the living word, gestures towards two realities, the incarnate word and the visual sensual life as interrelated in our life with God. In essence, the word and body are sacred, and the, in the icon, the sacredness of our body is illumined. 
The profane is the erasure, the dismemberment of body and soul. This separation becomes signified in the splitting of person and image, such as in the iconoclasts, or I would suggest in later colonial and modern constructions of race and gender, which we might ask, would it have been so easy to do for race and gender to emerge had notions of faith already dismembered, had not already dismembered image from the body? For the reformers, the sacred was bound to promise, to word, to exhortation. The sacred was something true that hid beneath and all that we see either pointed toward something sacred or away something profane. And so to say this is, an this is indicative of an anemic dual dualism is to miss the reformers' attempts to express the truth of the earliest disciples of Jesus that they saw in him. That to see was the point to taste, to hear, to be touched. The reformers, in focusing on the word preached and heard, did not disperse this economy, though. Rather, like shockwaves, the visual energy of this economy becomes inflict inflected throughout the emerging Protestant cultural field into images for teaching, into propaganda, into architecture and geography of a de facto theology of the icon. Writing some 400 years later on the other side of a, of a world where bodies had become indelibly marked by race, gender, nationality, and sexuality, theorist Stuart Hall would try to make sense of just how images in the media or popular culture functioned to create and maintain the meaning that seemed to mark all of our lives. He writes, the shaping and reshaping of space-time relationships within different discursive systems of representation have profound effects for how identities are narrated and understood. All identities are located in symbolic space and time. Like sexuality, they take place in the field of vision, as Jacqueline Rose suggests in her book of that same name. And vision always has its spatial coordinates, real or imaginary, in a field or the overall gestalt in which the subject is perceptually placed. To say that all identities are located or imagined in symbolic space and time is thus to say that we can see cultural identities as landscaped, as having an imagined place or symbolic home. What Hall is pointing to here is the interrelationship between images, our bodies, and the meanings that are ascribed to them that ultimately cult constitute cultural values and identities. For those of you in my workshop, you're all like, yeah, we know, we know about that, right? <laughs> Circuit of culture, yeah. <laughs> so we all navigate these currents because we see one another. We make assumptions and classifications about one another. Where do these ideas come from? These ideas are maintained and produced through this relation, interrelationship of what is seen and those who are seen. Eastern traditions around image have focused on the reciprocity of body and image, an economy between image and body and Christ into which we commune and participate with. The Western resistance to veneration does not quite capture what is at work here in the East, that there is an underlying economy this current of visuality is shaping us, and this economy or current is not simply the icon, but is grounded in the, in the creation of humanity as a mago Dei, then Israel as the enunciation of this name, and then the incarnation as the fullness of the word, of, of the word made flesh. 
And so while the theology of the icon is an important way of thinking about what is happening in the West, and especially the Reformation, this current of visuality is not simply a theological phenomenon. Or perhaps better stated that the theology of the icon in Eastern theology points to the reality of visuality that permeates all human life. We might say that as soon as Adam and Eve open their eyes, see one another, see the trees, see the stars in the sky, in that moment is the birth of an economy of visuality. It just is. It is part of creation. It is part of embodiment. It is part of our lives as sensual creatures in some form or fashion. And so the, and what we see, we are visual creatures, and we create and recreate our world. We use visual symbols, among others, to cultivate a sense of belonging, to convey meaning, to communicate who we believe ourselves to be. And in turn, these images, these signs also serve to shape us, to cultivate how we see the world and who we believe ourselves to be. And so in a way, there was a, a transposition away from union of word and body encapsulated in Catholic understandings of Eucharist, but which also permeated Catholic understandings of art and image. That the visual could speak of something. Oh, that's the last one. Right. <laughs> that these images could speak of something. So part of what I'm imagining here is if you imagine in Catholic life, you have, you have nuns and you have priests. You have small images of, of, of saints. You've got statues of saints all over the wall. You've got stained glass windows. You've got the Eucharist. You've got the vestments. In a way, there's no one particular place right, that can encapsulate the fullness of what it means to be with God. And so here, even in some ways, the multiplicity of images mitigates even the maleness of the priest. Because in a way, you have multiple images in multiple places. And that's not to necessarily, in my view, absolve the Catholic Church of patriarchy. But it is to say there's something happening there. There's a different kind of energy. And maybe perhaps it, make, it helps us to understand why the Catholic Church has the capacity to be a diverse worldwide body. Whereas in the West, the church is a, homogene, a racially and ethnically homogenous phenomenon. What's happening there? Well, in the West, imagine all of those images get stripped out, and all you have then is the preacher. <laughs> Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, right? Part of this idea of the economy of the visuality is to say that work is doing something to us. It's forming us in some way that we have to account for. And so in the midst of Protestant hesitancy over creating visual images, they cannot dissolve the energy of the body. And they can't dissolve the vital interrelationship between what we see and feel and hear in the world and how we imagine ourselves. Instead, as Protestant pastors and priests stripped their halls of ornamentation and color, pushed pulpits to the center of their sanctuaries, all for the sake of centering the spoken word of God, they unwittingly created a new icon in themselves, the one who speaks truth and divides the word rightly. And so in the Reformation's struggle with the significance of image, we see a distortion of the body and its relationship to Christian discipleship. The icon is not the image, but the preacher and the pulpit. The economy of the icon reverberates a relationship between his, and I do mean his, body and a deeper truth. 
his body becomes the mediating icon, the window into which the hearer gazes and must discern what faithfulness looks like. And while the legacy of men as the sole authority in the church is certainly not new, the Protestant Reformation is the introduction of a patriarchal iconicity that underlies the racism and misogyny of the modern world. Put differently, the Protestant Reformation subdued the varied and expressive possibilities of artists and artistic image and concentrated their iconic power into an image of the preacher of the word or into created images that reinforced the preacher's image or, and, his, and ultimately reinscribed his maleness as the normative arbiter of theological truth and judgment. By dividing Christian life from reflection upon images, the Protestant tradition was rendered even more incapable of theologically comprehending the difference they would encounter in the world or within its walls. As we navigate a world where difference of embodiment seems to be proliferating, and we continue to worship in churches where women consist of only 12% of lead or sole pastoral roles, that number even seems high to me, where the few churches are led by pastors of a different race or ethnicity than their congregation, we must begin to account for how these theological challenges point to the ways in which our bodies speak and how images are formative in our Christian lives. Our understanding of Christian life and imagining our lives together has to account for the ways that we see one another. For these economies of visuality, every single space we walk into, there is this economy. You cannot pretend that it's not there. How do we begin to see this as an opportunity as vital to what it means to be faithful Christian disciples? And so what I'm suggesting here is more than a question of representation, as some sort of politically correct call to have diverse faces in prominent positions. Please, no tokens, please. At stake here is something much deeper. When we consider the visuality of our spaces, or our institutions is not simply representational, but as formational, as doing the generative, transformational work of an icon, we begin to see everything that happens in our Christian spaces as brimming with possibility of the word becoming truth, of, of demonstrating, of visualizing what it is that God has done and is doing, that the word has come into the world and is risen, is seen, is tasted, is heard, that God becomes incarnate in the world not through an idea, but through flesh, through materiality, through color and sound and smell. And the theology of the icon is important not simply because it helps us to understand whether images should be allowed or whether they're even useful. The theology of the icon is reflective of a fundamental truth of human existence, that we are shaped by what we see. We are formed by our sensual lives, and these senses constitute what we believe we are and what is possible for us. As a father of three children, I see it's, it is scary to admit this. We pray with our kids every day. What do you thank God for? We hope they memorize a little bit of scripture. I say, kids, don't watch too much TV. Don't get sucked into your screen, blah, blah, blah. And then here I am after maybe a five-hour binge of Westworld. <laughs> And my kids are like, Dad, screen time. <laughs> you know, I say, oh, we need to care for the poor. We need to be about justice. And I drive by the same homeless man every single time, avoiding contact, right? They see that, right? 
And the tr most tragic thing is that I begin to realize that I don't say anything to my kids when I teach them. It is, it is the materiality and shape of my life that is formative for them. They see me, and that's what, the, what helps them to understand what's true or not true. What they see what I do is also indicative of what they think I believe is true. So in con visual economy is the substance of Christian discipleship even more than a good lesson. And so if we are to live into the fullness of God's purposes and God's present kingdom, we cannot do it without varied signs and bodies. We need them not simply to reflect the world as it is, but because without these variations, we fall into a constant temptation to stabilize the word of God into a singular domesticated shape. Every time my wife leads worship or preaches, she will have a young woman. This is every single time. Young woman come up to her, tears in her eyes. You are the first woman I have ever heard preach. Ever. You are the first woman I've ever seen baptize someone. When she led worship, this is the first time I've ever been able to sing and have my voice consonant with the leader somehow. So while Catholic theologies of image certainly stabilize the male priest as mediator of God, they do something like this. They give us images of Mary they give us nuns, they give us the Eucharistic table, they give us statues and rosary. The Catholic aesthetic is a mosaic of bodies and material life that transfers the visual economy of God's work and life in multiple directions, in the very least. But in the Protestant refusal of images and the emphasis upon a disembodied word, they transferred this full weight of the visual economy to one person, one form. And in that field of vision, we see men and women inundated on a daily and weekly basis with images of, word, of the word of God embedded within a male body. And in the same way that this circumscribes women's vision of what, it is, what is possible for them, of God's life and promises as sounding in their voices and in their bodies, this image also continually reinforces the image of men as authority, as reflective of something in God's life that is true even despite the incongruence of male preachers' words and lives. Yeah. <laughs> and so at stake in the Reformation's understanding of visuality and its attempts to suppress the visuality of Christian life, we see a tear beginning to open in Western notions of Christian identity. It is a spirituality that having refused its eyes and bodies as vital instruments of loving, knowing, and being known, ultimately, we would not be able to recognize or account for the difference that we, can, that we see in the world. That somehow we would not have the language to account for these complicated interrelationships and the paradox of bodily life, and thus could only make sense of the world in clumsy dualisms. Faith and art, church and state, soul and body. And in the midst of these dualisms, we would see certain bodies, certain people, continually sorted into categories of inferior, inferiority or incapacity, 
capacity and calling, authoritative or natural leaders, or any other euphemism that belies just how much our bodies seem to be speaking something before we ever utter a word. Ironically, the Protestant Reformation, with its devotion to the word and true faith, in its derision of images and idols, would ultimately erect theologies and institutions that would render women of color, white women, men of color silent, not because of their words, but because of the bodies that uttered those words. But of course, faith never was, and never will be, an abstracted universal truth. The incarnation points us always to a word bodied, particular, seen, Tomorrow I'll talk a little bit more about artists that bring something in from where there was no thing. But to end tonight on a slightly hopeful note, what we see again and again, despite the kind of prevalence of a system that wants to silence, we see women, in a sense, like artists, imagining themselves as something beyond, something more, as having something to say and almost with no resources other than their own lives, create themselves, create images of a kind of truthfulness, oftentimes despite the very denominations or institutions that they are within. And so tomorrow morning, I will ask how black artists especially might point us to a fuller theological understanding of visual life. But for now, I will leave you only with these images. Thank you.